Lord God Almighty, we pray that you would bless this time, that you would fill this place with your spirit, that the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts might be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, an elderly woman sits in her rocking chair. The aged wood creaking gently underneath her as she rocks back and forth. She's lived a long, full life, a life full of many blessings. But also its fair share of sorrows. But as she rocks back and forth in the dim light of her living room, she finds herself thinking that she just wants to go home. You see, she's reached the age in life where it seems like God is only taking things away from her. Her husband has been dead for many years and she's just felt that sense of being alone. She's even experienced the tragedy of burying one of her own children. Her sense of hearing, her sense of taste, they've started to fade away. But for her, that's not even the worst part. The worst thing is that she started to lose her eyesight to the point where now she cannot even read the words of Scripture placed in front of her. And so as she sits there, she finds herself crying out, Lord, where are you? What are you doing, Lord? Why can't I just go home? Maybe we've never found ourselves uttering those exact words. Maybe we've lived blessed lives and we really haven't experienced great tragedy or despair. And yet I wager that if we look at our lives honestly, we can find times where we have thought to ourselves, Lord, what are you doing? Is this really your perfect plan? Where are you, God? What are you doing, Lord? As we look at the world around us, the pain and the violence, the death that just is always there. And even as we look at our own lives, the tragedies and sorrows that we face, those words are all too easy to say. And in fact, in our Old Testament reading this morning, we see the prophet Habakkuk making a similar prayer, bringing this prayer before God. The very first words that he utters in his oracle, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? or cry to you violence, and you will not save. 
These are sharp words from the prophet Habakkuk, words of pain and suffering. He's practically accusing God, saying, God, you have not been here. You have promised that you would be with your people, and you are absent. What are you doing, Lord? Now, I'd wager that our knowledge of the historical situation during the prophet of Habakkuk's writing is probably not that strong. If I'm honest, I had to look it up too. But I think it's important to see why he's making this complaint. And if you look at Habakkuk's life, at the time where he would have been writing, it actually starts out with a very good king, with King Josiah, a king that took over as a child and reigned for 39 years. But while he was still relatively young, died in battle. And remember, this Josiah was a king who restored the law to the people of Israel, who broke down idols, who brought God's will back into the lives of his people. This was a good king, a righteous king. But his sons left something to be desired. His firstborn son, Jehoahaz, was only sat on the throne for three months before Egypt came and took him into exile. And along the way, they extracted a tribute of gold and silver from the temple treasury, not only taking the king from Israel, but also its wealth. And the brother that took his place, Eliakim, whom the, Isra- whom the Egyptians named Jehoiakim, he reigned for 11 years. But it's interesting, the Old Testament record describes both of these kings as evil in the sight of the Lord. And so when we picture the reign of these kings, we should be picturing an evil time in the lives of God's people. A time where idols would be being built up again and perhaps even children being sacrificed to these heathen gods. A time where we might picture the poor and the lowly being cast down before the rich and the powerful. Greed far outweighing generosity. A time where there's few people who still were righteous left in Israel walked quietly. Or maybe they were afraid to share the will of God to their neighbors and friends because they were afraid of the persecution that might ensue. And so is it any wonder then that Habakkuk is crying out to God, God, where are you? You have promised us peace and reconciliation and yet there's destruction and death on every corner. We are your chosen people, and yet we look like everyone else. Sin is rampant. Iniquity is everywhere. Lord, how are you going to make this right? You have said that you would lift up the righteous, and yet the very wicked ones are the ones that sit on the throne. What are you doing, Lord? I think it's interesting that our lectionary reading actually skips over God's first response to Habakkuk. And this is God's first response to this question, what are you doing, Lord? 
Where are you? Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I suspect that the Chaldeans would be better known by the other name for their nation, Babylon. Yes, the same Babylon that would come to Jerusalem and would take God's people and drag them from their homes and put them in exile. The same Babylon that would come and would raise the temple of the living God to the ground, leaving not one stone upon another. This is God's plan for Jerusalem. That this conquering army would invade and destroy the wicked. And Habakkuk doesn't think that's a particularly good idea. He calls out to the Lord and he says, Lord, are you sure this is what you want for your people? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk again calls out to God, with this complaint, saying, God, this plan doesn't make sense. Why would the few righteous that are still left in Jerusalem, why would you come in and have a foreign army invade and take them away? Why would you destroy your temple? Why would this violence and bloodshed and death have to happen? Why would you let these heathens, these foreigners, come into our land and take us away? What are you doing, Lord? And this is where our lectionary reading picks up. With Habakkuk climbing the walls of Jerusalem, climbing into the towers, and looking out over the land. And I imagine as he did so, he pictured that foreign conquering army that would soon be filling those hills. I imagine he pictured the blood that would be shed in the battles to come. As he looked out at the trees surrounding Jerusalem, I imagine he pictured them being chopped down, turned into weapons of war, weapons that would shatter the very wall upon which he was standing. I imagine he pictured the grisly images, the sin and iniquity which would be without the city and within. And he called out to the Lord and said, what are you doing, Lord? And as we read moments ago, this was the Lord's response. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. 
it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. If it seems slow, wait for it. seems slow, wait for it. You see, God's people have always been a people in wait. In fact, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Right after the fall to Genesis chapter 4, we can see God's people waiting, waiting for that promised reconciliation for that time when God would make everything right, when he would send a savior to bring his people back to himself. And in fact, when Eve first gives birth to Cain, her first words are, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And Luther and many commentators have suggested that when Eve says this, when she talks about this being a gift from the Lord, she is thinking that this son, this Cain, is the one who is going to save her and Adam from their sin, the one who is going to make everything right, the one that they've been looking for. But of course, we know how that turns out. Violence, bloodshed, and death, murder. This Cain was not the savior that was promised. And so Adam and Eve would have to wait. And God's people would wait and wait and wait violence and death and bloodshed surrounding them at every turn. And so when God gives this promise to Habakkuk, if it seems slow, wait for it. I can imagine there being some frustration, maybe some anger. Lord, all we have been doing is waiting. And I can't help but wonder if Habakkuk even really knew what he was waiting for. As he looked out over the hills outside Jerusalem, I wonder if he knew that he was waiting for one particular hill. As he pictured the violence and the bloodshed that would ensue, I wonder if he knew that he was waiting for one particular man's blood to be shed. As he looked at those trees, trees that would be torn down and uprooted to shatter the wall, I wonder if he knew he was waiting for one particular tree to be lifted up. As he dealt with the reality of sin without the city and within, I wonder if he knew he was waiting for all of that sin to be placed on one man. As he dealt with the reality of sin and death, I wonder if he knew that he was waiting for one man whom not even death could hold. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
We don't often think this when we think of the prophets, of people who were talking to God, but you and I have a distinct advantage in our lives. We know what they were waiting for. We know that they were waiting for one man, Jesus of Nazareth, the very Son of God to descend amongst His people, to take our sins, our iniquity to the cross, to be in the midst of violence and bloodshed and death, to experience it Himself, but to come out victorious on the other end. Brothers and sisters, we have an advantage because we know that in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises have been fulfilled. That long-awaited salvation has been shown and proven and given to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But brothers and sisters, we too are still a people in wait. A people who live in the midst of violence and bloodshed and death. Who look around us and see evil at every turn. But look forward to that day when we will no longer have to cry out violence. When there will no longer be iniquity on every street corner. When the Son of Man will return a second time in all His glory, His light chasing the darkness of sin and death away. We wait for that day when there will be no more suffering and no more pain, no more sorrow and no more loss, where we will be reunited with the saints of every time and place. where we will dwell in the light of the sun, where the righteous will no longer live by faith, but by sight, where we will look upon our Savior's face and dwell in His glorious presence for all eternity. That is what you and I are waiting for, brothers and sisters. But until that great and glorious day, we continue to be the righteous that shall live by faith. But I wonder if we really thought that Jesus might return at any moment, that he might come down in the next second and end this sermon to which we would all say amen. I wonder if that faith might look a little bit different. I wonder if as if Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy, that faith might more look like this. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If we really thought that Jesus might return tomorrow, could we sit idly by while our friends and neighbors, our brothers and sisters, our co-workers, people that we've just met on the street, could we sit idly by when they didn't know Him?
Could we sit in fear at sharing his word, at wondering what they might say, what persecution we might endure, if we knew that judgment day might come at any moment? Would we live in fear? Or would the power of the Spirit fill us? Power to speak the gospel to all we meet. If we really thought that Christ might return at any moment, would we save up vast sums of wealth for ourselves for a rainy day? Or would we be more concerned with providing for our neighbor's needs right now? Last weekend, our church sent a group of individuals over to help with Feed My Starving Children, which was an awesome thing. It's a great way to serve our neighbor. And yet, do you know how much money it costs to feed a single child for a year? $88. $88. And yet, somewhere throughout the world, a child dies because of hunger-related issues every six minutes. if we really thought that Jesus could return at any moment, could the love of Christ that's in our lives let that happen? And yes, sin and anger and worry and doubt and jealousy and lust, all of those things are still a part of us in our sinful condition. But if we really thought that the Lord might return at any moment, why don't we strive just a little bit harder to have self-control? Why don't we strive just a little harder to do the things we are ought to do, to have self-control, rather than to give in to sin? So, brothers and sisters, I ask that you return your mind to that elderly woman sitting in a rocking chair. That elderly woman who cried out, What are you doing, Lord? She cannot read the scriptures any longer. But she also prays out a prayer that we all know Our Father, who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The righteous shall live by faith. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, may it guard and keep your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord until the day of his coming. Amen.